Hello, everyone. Seven Investing CEO Simon Erickson here, and thank you for listening to the Seven Investing Podcast. Our podcast is made possible by our subscribers, who allow us to empower you to invest in your future each and every month. In exchange, we give our subscribers exclusive access to our monthly stock market recommendations from each of our lead advisors. To support this podcast and join other Seven Investing fans in our exclusive subscribers forum, where we discuss the latest market moves in real time, go to 7investing.com slash subscribe to subscribe to 7investing today. We're here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7investing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of our 7investing podcast, where it's our mission to empower you to invest in your future. If you'd like to learn more about our long-term investing approach and also see our stock recommendations each and every month, visit us at 7investing.com slash subscribe. I'm your host, Simon Erickson. We're going to be talking about digital assets today. The World Wide Web, the information superhighway, the internet has become quite a popular place over the past few decades. I'm very excited to welcome my guest, Mohit Tater, to the show today. He's the CEO of Black Book Investments, also a tenured expert when it comes to setting up shop online, buying and selling businesses, and also managing them. Mohit, thanks very much for joining me today on the 7 Investing Podcast. Thanks for, thanks for having me, Simon. That was a generous intro. Thank you so much. <laughs> now, Mo, I've seen, I've seen previous interviews of yours. I, I, I'm a little familiar with your story about how you kind of got That's started great. with blogging and then bought some properties, and now That's you're nice. hundreds of thousands you know of dollars already. in cash flow. Um, but, <laughs> you know but, it already. Let, yeah. let me jump. Let me jump into the punchline, though. Let me let me ask you: with everything that you've seen over the 10, last ten or fifteen years or so of doing this, yeah. uh, how how has the internet changed the most? Do you think? I think uh, it's much more dynamic now. There are much more creators today than there were ten years ago. There's much more content. Uh, everyone has a phone, and there's much more video now rather than you know just text only. So text is kind of taking a backseat right now, and video is like at the forefront. And it's only going to capture more market share uh, in the coming year. So that's one thing that, and, you know, video appeals to everyone. Like, you know, someone even who's not well-read or well-educated, they can create a video and that might go viral. Whereas, you know, if you, if it were just for the text-based uh, content, you'd have to be like thoughtful or intellectual or, you know, have to have your own ideas to write something meaningful. Uh, but with videos, I mean, there's all kinds of videos that are, you know, going crazy, like it could be just spoof videos or funny videos. And you don't need to, you know, you don't need brains to do those. I mean, you can be a kid and do those. So it's put more power in the, in the hands of uh, people as creators, I would say. Yeah. And one of those transitions we've seen, like you're, like you're mentioning the cat videos, you know, or, or any other funny <laughs> videos. I mean, you've kind of seen the rise of things like TikTok, right? Smaller communities yeah, yeah. versus Seriously, just these massive yeah. properties. Um, can you talk a little bit about how advertising has changed, you know, from text and, you know, just display ads that were very simple to a much more complex internet we have now? Yeah, I mean, it was only, it used to be Google AdSense back in the day, and there was no other choice, to be honest. And there was like media.net also, but but there's been a lot of uh, new players in the industry, like uh, AdThrive, which is now Raptive, MediaVine. So programmatic ads, display ads are like, on the up and they're on the rise right now, not just for text content, but of course also, you know, for video related video content also. So ads are taken over and, you know, as you know, all like the big, except let's say maybe Apple, I think uh, Google, Facebook, 
Twitter, all of these companies rely on ads, I mean, for their revenue. So they're here to stay. They've only grown in the last five, 10 years. And um, it, they, I mean, clicks used to be for advertisers, clicks used to be cheaper, but it's gotten costly now too much. So, which means that there's more uh, advertising dollars available, uh, you know, for, and there's more people, more companies advertising ever than before. So, yeah, I mean, uh, display ads and then ads in general have, you know, gone up uh, quite a lot in the past few years. There was a, there was, there were talks that, you know, ads are dead and everything, but I don't see them going anywhere because the big companies, they're, they rely on ad revenue for their, that's their business model. So they're here to stay. They're only going to grow from here. Yeah. And how about smaller publishers too, right? Certainly the largest, you know, getting all the traffic, the largest sites out there that we're already familiar with, of course, they're monetizing with advertising. Yeah. Is it the same if you're a smaller publisher? Are you still working with Google and trying to place display ads or has that changed at all in the last couple of years? Yeah, even for smaller uh, players, I'd say they have other options other than Google AdSense. So Ezoic is a player that they allow sites that don't have too much traffic, uh, but they allow them uh, to be on their platform. And uh, they usually make better with Ezoic than they would with uh, Ad AdSense. And then there's Media.net, then there's AdThrive, different levels of traffic requirements for these two companies. Uh, and that's where you can unlock the higher RPMs for your site because they have better advertisers, uh, their inventory is better, their, uh, you know, advertiser publisher matching is better so that they can optimize for, uh, for every click and they can optimize for, every, you know, impressions on your site based on your niche and the demographic they have. So yeah, it has gotten better earlier. It was like very generic, but now with cookies and everything, you only see targeted ads and, uh, those are, you know, really valuable to your, or in specific to the readers of that particular publication. So no matter how small or big of a publication you are, I think there is a, a lot of uh, revenue to be generated. Not, and not just in ads, I'd say affiliate revenue is also big, uh, by the way. So yeah, it doesn't matter uh, if you're a big name publisher or a small time single person uh, writer, you can make a living, you can make a living pretty much today writing. Yeah. And then the mechanism for advertising, I wanted to ask your thoughts about the third party cookie, you know, obviously reg regulars have really kind of brought the hammer down a lot of big tech companies tracking the internet, The third party cookie has been the mechanism of identifying people and you know how, the, how their browser was going through. Um, we've seen both Google and Facebook and several others saying they're going to phase those out over the next couple of years. Is, it, is a third party cookie still going to be around for a while? Or are we starting to see a transition for how, um, you know, yeah. behavior on the internet is being tracked? So not yet. It's it's here to stay for a while. I mean, it's not going anywhere. And you know, it's not a bad thing to be honest. Like people think of it as a bad thing, but I'll tell you what. Like if you're on the internet, your data is public anyways. There's no such thing as privacy if you are on the internet. Okay, so that's thing. That's one thing. So and if you're going to see ads, you might as well see ads that are targeted to you, then see something that you are not interested in, because I often discover really good things uh, by targeted ads and which I'm interested in, and I maybe sometimes end up buying those things. So I'm all for it because I'm, you know, I know that my data is public because I'm on the internet. Uh, privacy is, is just uh, something that, you know, it's, it's non-existent. So might as well get targeted with relevant ads, you know, rather than irrelevant ones. So I think cookies are here to stay for a while. Uh, even if they go, there will be maybe some other mechanism that these companies will devise to track user data because 
because once you've done targeted advertising, I mean, there's no going back because those were the bad, you know, old days and where you didn't have the targeting like, you know, that you have uh, at the level they're doing it today. And then you would see random ads of random stuff. Uh, but with the targeting, it's so super targeted that you only see, you know, you're, you're talking about it and then you see an ad for it the next day. That's the level of uh, targeting that there is today. So I don't think there's any going back uh, from this. Maybe they'll change the mechanism, uh, but yeah, they'll still be targeted ads in the future. Yeah. Uh, Mohit, could you tell us a little bit about what you do with Black Book Investments? Are you going out and, you know, just like we might be buying houses and collecting rent checks from them in the physical world, are you doing the same thing with digital assets where you're buying properties and finding ways to monetize? Pretty much similar, yeah. So uh, what I do is under with my company, Black Book Investments, is we buy and operate a portfolio of online businesses, which can include content websites, niche websites. Uh, we don't do e-commerce, but we are into tools and software also. So these are businesses that generate revenue already when we buy them. We don't buy you know, businesses that don't generate revenue. And when we buy them, we try to look for opportunities where we can grow the revenue or maybe some low-hanging fruit. Uh, so it's just like how a real estate investor would you know, find a fixer-upper, get that for a good price, fix that up, you know, increase the rents or either flip it, sell it. That's exactly what we do. We come in, uh, we buy the property, we buy the digital asset, we buy the website, the business, whatever. We come in, we optimize it, we improve it, we increase the revenue. Then we either keep it in our portfolio or we sell it. But I'm like a long time, a long, long-term cash flow guy. So I try and hold as much as I can. Um, so the only difference between real estate and digital real estate is that what I do is more hands-on. Like with a rental property, I mean, you don't have to work on it every day, right? You can just maybe have, you know, collect your rent payments every month or maybe fix something once in a while if it's broken. But what we do is we buy actual running, you know, business, active businesses that me and my team manage and run and grow. And that's the reason we are able to get a higher ROI for our investment, because with the real estate, you can get a cap rate of maybe 8, 10, 12%, maybe 15% if you're really lucky. But with us, we have been able to deliver 27, 28% annualized ROI to our investors over the past 10 years. And that's after our fee, that's after Black Book's fee. So just imagine, I mean, uh, the, uh, the scope of, of digital real estate in terms of the ROI you can get. Sign me up, Mohit. I will gladly take a 27, <laughs> 28% return after fees. I'll gladly pay you whatever you're charging. That's a great return for investors. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. 
Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy-on, easy-off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Are, are there things that yep. you look for, though? You know, are there certain, are there certain sites that you just have... You, you find very appealing either they're in the right sector or they're getting a ton of traffic or what finds what do you what do you see in those fixer uppers that, that really sticks out yeah so it's not that always we look for fixer uppers what we look for is solid stable and growing assets these these sites are either you know doing a solid stable revenue or they're going up in the revenue and traffic numbers we do not buy distressed or you know declining assets I'm not a turnaround expert, neither do I have any ambition to turn around, you know, dying businesses or websites. I just go with the, you know, tight and then buy growing businesses. That's one thing. I, I try and buy something evergreen. Uh, I, for example, you know, I'd buy something that is probably, you know, in let's say the tech niche, technology is going to be there. It might change, but technology is going to be there. As opposed to, let's say I'm buying a super niche site about a particular game that might not exist after two years or three years. It might be the hot thing right now, but might not exist in three years. So I look for long-term play. So let's say whether that thing is going to be around five years from now or not. If that's a yes, then of course, uh, we'll, you know, we'll consider it. If not, then we'll not consider it. Then third thing is that there should be some low, you know, low hanging fruit for us to pick. Uh, so whether that should be, an unmonetized uh, uh, stream of revenue. Let's say the site has display ads, but hasn't implemented affiliate revenue. We can come in and do that. Or let's say vice versa. Or let's say, you know, we can come in and negotiate higher commissions with the existing affiliate affiliates so that we can increase the income from day one with the existing traffic. Uh, or we can, you know, just something as simple as swapping out uh, a display ad network with uh, another one. Let's say uh, I am on MediaWine and I can get my other sites on MediaWine too with a lower amount of threshold, traffic threshold, as opposed to if I were just signing up, uh, you know, with them uh, as a new publisher. So I see a guy doing, you know, his site or her site on AdSense. They're making whatever, five, two, four, two, three thousand bucks on there. And I know that if I move this to MediaWine, I'm going to immediately see a bump of 30% in the revenue. And I can do that. So... I look for those properties, so low-hanging fruit. And uh, it should be something that I should be you know, able to understand. Should not be something obscure that I, I cannot even follow the niche or the topic, because if I cannot, I cannot see if the writer has done justice to what the topic is, what the articles are. So it should be something that at least I, I can understand, if not you know, write about, because I don't write, of course, but we hire experts, so it should be, fairly relatively easy to write, find experts for, to write on the site also, because we only work with experts uh, and not generic writers for our content, uh, for all our websites. And that truly does really well, I mean, uh, compared to generic con uh, research content by a, a random generic writer. Uh, and the last thing is, you know what? I see who the seller is. 
what their motivation is, you know, for selling. Uh, I, I like to buy from people who have done this as a passion, as a hobby. And maybe they've, you know, either just died out, fizzled out, or maybe they're in need of some cash. And I ideally try to stay away from people who do this for a living because their job is just to make that site to sell. And I, I don't, you know, prefer that. I prefer to buy from someone genuine who has put in time and effort and their expertise into that uh, site. So, yeah, these are some, some of the things that I look for. You mentioned a couple of times on, on your site and, and the materials I've seen that you talked about before about the digital asset life cycle. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? You know, do websites evolve over time? Yeah, I mean, uh, they do. But then there are sites that we have been holding for eight, nine, 10 years now, and they're still with us. And uh, we're still doing the same thing on them. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, for a typical uh, life cycle of a website that we buy for an investor, let's say, uh, it's like a two and a half, three, your time span for the whole life cycle to complete. Some investors like holding longer. They don't want to sell because they like the cash flow. But typically, you know, what you do is you identify an asset, you negotiate, you do the due diligence, buy it. That's going to take three to four months. Once you've, you know, bought it, then you come in and, you know, implement your growth strategy, implement your uh, skills to grow that website. That takes about, let's say, six to 12 months, 12 months to, you know, do everything that you have planned for that site. So that we're like almost 18 months in now. Uh, then you collect the cash flow from it, let's say for another six to 12 months uh, and reduce the expenses. And when you're at, at the two and a half year mark from starting, then you can start thinking about, you know, selling it. So, you know, another six months and then you list it. And since the expenses have been less in the last 12 months, your profits are maximized. And because of that, you can get a higher price for your uh, website because the profit is more and people buy on the multiple of the profit. So if your site is doing, let's say $100,000 a year in net profit, you can maybe get $300,000 to $400,000 for it. Um, and if you are having too many expenses, then that takes away from the profit that takes your site's value uh, lower. So yeah, you optimize for the first uh, year, year and a half, let it collect revenue for another six, 12 months. And then we, you know, this this way, we're able to, in three years, we're able to get an annualized ROI of 27, 30%, which includes the dividend payouts, the, the income that you get from the website while running it, and also any capital gains that you might realize when you sell it. So, yeah. Fantastic. I've got to ask, Mohit, the, uh, the question that, that everyone knows I'm going to ask you, which is AI, which is, I hear this about 17 times a day, <laughs> GPT, right? Everyone thinks this is disrupting everything, including the internet. Um, certainly GPT is a different way of looking for information yeah. than, than typical Google search. What's your thoughts on open AI, on GPT, on, on, on all the developments? Yeah. Here? yeah, I mean, there's a lot of doom and gloom right now in the industry. Right, right, everywhere, um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think there's nothing to be afraid of, first of all. Uh, I also think that AI and, you know, all these tools, you know, chat GPT, GPT-4, they're not a fad. I think they're here to stay and only going, are only going to improve over time but they will augment existing search. They will not replace the existing search that as we see today. The reason being AI needs data and content to output. And if there is no original content or data written by original actual writers, there is nothing for the AI to you know, uh, learn from, first of all. So there will always be demand for high quality original content by genuine experts, niche experts. So that's one thing. The other thing is 
if you know all these companies like you know Google, Microsoft, uh, Facebook, they all rely you know heavily on ads, ad ad revenue. So even if it's you know normal search is replaced by ChatGPT, Google will find a way to integrate that into the existing search model so that they can show ads and collect revenue and it will augment. So what I've seen is even though you are like asking uh, Google Bard about whatever uh, question that you might have, but it will give you the list of uh, articles on the site that you know it has taken the reference from. And more often than not, you'd want to go and check out those sites because you'd want to learn more about whatever topic you're researching or whatever product you're researching. And thirdly, I don't, I don't think uh, it is so easy for, uh, you know, AI to replace the human nature, the, the tendency. We've been searching a particular way for the past 20 years since Google was around. It's not going to change overnight. Like, and even for people like us who are savvy, who are at the forefront of, you know, uh, technology and updates in the industry, even I don't use ChatGPT. Like, I don't even remember last time I used it. I still use Google the way I <laughs> used it two years ago. It's not going to change behavior overnight. So there's nothing to be afraid of it. It will augment existing search. And if not, it'll only increase uh, the you know, revenue and, and clicks and, and views for really good original content. And it will kind of uh, you know, phase out or uh, basically generic content is going to lose out for AI. So that's the uh, risk there is. So if you're doing generic content, uh, I mean, then you are at a loss for sure. But if your content is top-notch and original, you have nothing to be afraid of, I feel. And then my last question, Mo, is, uh, you know, I know that you're a traveler. I, I know that you spend a lot of time in India. You spend a lot of time in the U.S. I think you're traveling right now. You know, you've seen a bunch yeah. of different continents. Um, excluding China for a moment with this question, can, can you talk a little bit, compare and contrast how the internet is different in different regions of the globe? how it's regulated, how culturally it's seen, how people like to publish things. Can you maybe just talk a little bit of kind of the, the similarities and the differences between like India, North America, South America, yeah. anywhere you want to, but just kind of your perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, just as a basic user of the internet, I think uh, India is a little bit more restricted. Um, to give you an example, let's say torrent websites are banned in India, so you cannot use a torrent website uh, to download stuff. That's one thing. Uh, pornography is banned in India, so you cannot use, you know, any pornography websites. Uh, not judging whether they're good or bad, but just giving you an idea of what. Uh, and then, you know, uh, TikTok is banned in India. Again, not not saying it's good or bad, but it is banned. So the Indian government deems it uh, not good for the Indian audience. So they banned it like two, three years ago. Uh, and uh, so there is censorship, but probably... It might be for the better because, of course, if the government is taking a certain step, it is for the good of the people. Uh, because, you know, if you think about it, I mean, TikTok is a form of entertainment, but it is a loss of productivity also, you know, when people spend less, spend mindless hours, you know, on, on it. So it just kind of decreases the overall productivity. So it's all for a reason, as opposed to in the U.S. where pretty much whatever I just documented is nothing is banned out of those things so yeah i mean it is a little different but i mean that's fine i mean it's not something that you know we cannot do without um 
I mean, you can always use a VPN. So, yeah, I mean, uh, and as for free speech, it is the same. I think it's the same in India as it is in the US. It's a, a democratic country. So uh, there's no, it's a democracy. So people have the right to, uh, the freedom to speech. So, yeah. Well, fantastic. Well, once again, Mohit Tater is the CEO and founder of Black Book Investments, uh, kind of an expert out there in, in buying and selling internet properties and also operating them for several decades now. Mohit, thanks very much for being a part of our Seven Investing podcast today. Thank, thank you, Simon. Really good to be on, on the pod. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in to this episode. We're here to empower you to invest in your future. We are Seven Investing.